2 Corinthians chapter 3. Is that where we left off? Second Corinthians chapter three. Anybody there? I still hear some rustling. It's like one of the best sounds ever, isn't it? Thank you this morning. It's so good to be together and be with you. Thank you for connecting our lives with you, with one another. Thank you that you are faithful. That you are trustworthy, that you are worthy of all of our thanks, our praise, our adoration, our very lives. Your name be hallowed. May your will be done. May your kingdom come, Lord. We desire, Lord, your choice, your desires in our lives. For you know what's best. Thank you for, Lord, this portion of scripture where you have us. We recognize there's no accidents in your kingdom, no coincidences, but divine appointments. This is a divine appointment this morning that we might hear from you. You tell us that your sheep hear your voice and they follow you. So speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Minister to our hearts. Meet us as you are so faithful to do day in and day out, week in and week out. We look forward to what you have for us. May you transform and change us by the power of your spirit for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Again, you know, Paul is reestablishing his apostolic authority with this church at Corinth and having to defend himself, which um, I really have a hard time swallowing. You know, here's Paul. He's gone through all of this difficulty to reach these people in Corinth, right? He's, he's been through stonings and beatings and shipwrecks, all these different things. He gets to Corinth. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens? People get radically transformed. They get born again. He invests his life in them, pours into them, and then he leaves and he finds out the church is in shambles. There's all kinds of issues and problems. So he writes them a letter, 1 Corinthians. And some of those issues got dealt with, but a lot of issues didn't get dealt with. And they began to allow into the church false teaching, which is like leaven, which will cause serious problems in the church. And we're warned about that over and over throughout the New Testament to be to beware of false teaching, to test everything with the word of God, to hold fast that which is good. And so Paul is now addressing in 2 Corinthians, um, again, he's not only giving biblical, biblical correction to the church, but he's having to defend himself in the midst of the accusations, um, in the criticisms that came his way. Um, and yet he continues to reach out to them. He continues to love them and share the truth and love with them. And along the way, we learn these amazing things about our God. And, and this chapter is no different this morning. Um, lots of conf- conflict about Paul over Paul. But what's interesting, just to be reminded of, is, is that it was generated by a small number of people. 
And that's always what happens. It's, it's a small group, a few, that inflict such great damage upon the many. And uh, it happens sometimes in churches. And so we have God's word to help us navigate these issues and the spirit of God also to lead us and to guide us into all truth. And so we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read um, first three verses. Let's, let's see what Paul writes. He says, do we begin again? To commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle. Written, notice this, in our hearts. Known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. And so let me draw your attention to verse 1. Paul asks a series of questions, and he says, do we need to establish that we're legitimate? Again, do we need to bring credentials to you? Do we need to bring... Um, do we need to bring letters to you of commendation or recommendation? And in ancient times, letters of recommendation were used for many people in ministry. Um, people would travel around from city to city, church to church, preachers, teachers, and they would come to a church. And you may not know exactly who they are, but they would have a letter from a previous church or, or, or from a previous churches that would give them legitimacy or would give them the credentials needed in order to be able to speak to the congregation. Again, there was lots of false teaching going on back then, just like there is today. And so these letters of recommendation would serve a purpose. And, and it's the same today, isn't it? Some of you ask me for letters of recommendation, right? You're looking for a new job. You're looking to, to pursue a new avenue of life. And you say, hey, can I use you as a, you know, as a source or a resource when, when they ask for a recommendation letter, can they contact you? And so I'm willing to do that. And so just so you know that, I'm willing to do that, however I can serve you, whatever capacity. But Paul, letters of commendation were not unusual. And so um, letters were necessary, just like they are today. But Paul's like, listen, listen, do we need to do that again with you guys? Do we need to write letters? Do we need letters from you? He says, you, look at verse 2, you are our letters. Your very lives speak of our work among you. I love what he says, you are our epistle. Epistle is a letter written where? What does it say? In our hearts. In our hearts. Paul says, we carry you around in our hearts. No matter where I go, that's intimacy, isn't it? That's a care. That's a concern. We've shared in, in God's grace together. God's connected our lives together in this special way. And we carry you around in our hearts wherever we go. You are written on our hearts. And anyone, look at the last part of this verse. And anyone that looks at your lives, they can see God's work in and through you. You are known and read by all men. And so Paul is saying, listen, our letter of commendation or our letter of recommendation is you. The verification of God's work is not on pieces of paper. 
It's your very lives, the fruit of our ministry, uh, of how we've invested in you. And so letters are nice, but guess what? Transformed, fruit-bearing lives are much better. Listen, a piece of paper doesn't necessarily legitimize somebody. You can go online and you can get ordination papers. You can print out your own little ordination sheet. And some of you come into my office, that was not printed out by me, by the way. Like, yeah, pastor, come on. And that was my pastor had a, a certificate of ordination. But listen, if, if there's a life that doesn't back it up or fruit uh, of a ministry that doesn't back it up, then all it is is a piece of paper. That's all it is. It, what matters is the fruit, the character of our lives, and the fruit that is, that is being born for the glory of God by his grace. And so the church at Corinth, their very changed lives validated Paul's character, his ministry, his calling, his authority. And then in verse 3, he says, it's absolutely clear. Clearly, you are an epistle of who? You're an epistle of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing to consider? You are an epistle, a living epistle of Jesus Christ. And it says, he says in the next part of that verse, ministered by us. Our ministry to you made that possible. Our coming to you, sharing the grace of God, teaching you about God's grace, ministering the word of God is what made that possible in your life. And aren't you grateful for the people that have invested in you, that have shared God's grace with you? As you look back, those people that have taught you about God, about who he is and how to walk with him, I am eternally grateful for the men and there's women that have poured into my life spiritually, have shared with me about God's grace, but not only shared with me, I saw it in their lives. They extended grace to me. And Paul extended them grace. Even in writing these letters, he's giving them grace, isn't he? He could have said, you know what? You talk trash about me. You guys are doing this. I'm done with you. Later days, man, I'll invest somewhere else. But he's like, no, I'll keep loving you. I'll keep pouring into you. I'll keep giving you grace like Jesus does in our lives. Grace upon grace upon grace. Because it's grace that changes lives. We're going to learn that in a minute. It's not law that changes lives. It's the grace of God that changes lives. And so he says, look at the next part of that verse. He says, it was, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written, how written, not with ink, But what? By the Spirit of the living God. He reminds the church it was a supernatural work of God's Spirit that happened in your lives. Don't ever forget that. It was by the Spirit of the living God. And this special work was not done on rock-hard surfaces, but on what? The tender tablets of your hearts. Your tender hearts, your soft hearts. And so, listen, by the way, what do letters do? If you write someone a letter, what are you doing? Aren't you communicating your heart and mind to someone? Right? I find it interesting because these letters, as living epistles, what are we being? Who's the author? Jesus is the author. And he wants to communicate beautiful themes through your life and mine. He wants to communicate his heart and mind through us. To, to, to share with a lost and dying world things about his character, things about his nature, about who he is. Who does he use? He uses us, the church, doesn't he? Does he use us or does he use... Hey, listen, it ain't the Muslims. It ain't the Buddhists. Jesus said, you and you alone are the light of the world. You and, that's what it is in the Greek. You and you alone. It's emphatic. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. Christian, 
brother or sister, follower of Jesus Christ. It's us. We are his epistles. We are his living epistles. And he wants to communicate these amazing things in and through our lives. Communicate that God is alive. That he is love. That he is full of grace and truth. By the power of the Spirit, he communicates these amazing themes through our lives. Jesus is the author. What is Paul saying here? Jesus is the author. Paul's the pen. The ink is the Holy Spirit. And the Corinthians are the paper, the parchment, if you will. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's been said, someone said this, and I wrote it down. You may be the only Bible that people read. You guys ever heard that before? You may be the, the only Bible that people read. The people in your workplace, the people at school that you share with, that you, that you come in contact with. And God's fingerprints are all over your lives, all over you. What he's done in your life, he's changed you, he's transformed you, he's doing a work in and through you, by his grace, by the spirit of the living God. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul goes on to say, and we have such trust through Christ toward God. You know, Paul was not boasting himself. He wasn't saying, you know, I'm the pen and the Holy Spirit's the ink and I'm really aw-. He's just a, an instrument, correct? Are you guys with me? Still, he's an instrument. Just like you guys ever do yard work? Anybody do yard work here? Or do you, have, you hire it out? You source it out? You do yard work, you know, you get done mowing the lawn and you don't want to go inside because you're covered with grass clippings. And what do you do? Where do you go to get refreshed? You go to the hose, and, but you don't put it up quick because what happens? There's warm, well, it's warm, right, to start, but then comes the, the fresh. And it tastes okay because it still has that rubber taste, doesn't it? <laughs> Just like us as instruments of the Lord, we're, we're providers of that fresh, right? Out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water, but there's still that rubber taste, isn't there? Like, yeah, Pastor, I know exactly what you're talking about. You're very rubbery. But Paul says, Paul's saying here, listen, our trust is in God. We're just the instruments that God used in your life. Don't exalt the host. Okay? We're just instruments of God's grace, conduits of his refreshment. Paul said earlier, we're just, we want to be fellow workers of your joy, that you would experience the fullness of joy, and it comes from being tapped into Jesus Christ. And so Paul's not boasting himself, but in God. We're confident in God's work. Look at verse 4. We trust the Lord for this. We're not striving. We're, we're not trying to look, look to be something we're not. We're just trusting the Lord. We trust in him. Not that we are sufficient. Look at verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from who? It's from God. Who, notice this, this is beautiful. We learned something about God. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Why? For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is so good, isn't it? I got this highlighted in my Bible, multicolored. In and of our, Paul saying, in and of ourselves, we are insufficient. We can't produce what only God can produce in and through a human being. God is our sufficiency. Have you come to that point yet? Paul was convinced that the only sufficiency he had 
was from the Lord. Do you believe that this morning? Because the problem is, what happens is we depend upon ourselves a lot, don't we? We don't trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding. We don't lean not on our own understanding. Oftentimes we look to our own wisdom, to our own resources, to our own ability. And the Lord says, okay, go for it. But apart from me, Jesus said, you can do, you can do nothing of any spiritual or lasting value. But if you abide in Jesus, stay connected to him in communion with him. What did he say? You'll bear much. You'll bear much fruit in your life. Because he is our sufficiency. He is the one who has unlimited resources that he wants to pour into our lives in order that we would, we would serve him, trusting in him, trusting in his grace is sufficient, trusting in his ability, not our own ability. And there's times when the Lord has to strip us. No amens for that. I, I get it. I understand. <laughs> The Lord has to strip us of our own abilities, our resources, of our, of our reliance upon ourselves to get the job done. And there's times where God has to bring us to that place where we have nothing else but him, that we would learn to trust in him. You guys remember David? Remember what happened to David? Remember when he was on the run from Saul? Remember when he took off, Saul wanted to kill him, throwing spears? By the way, David never picked up the spear to throw back at Saul. Saul began to hunt him down, and the first place David went to was, he went to church. Remember when he went to church? Priest and Nob gave him what? Gave him bread, thank you. Gave him bread, and he lied, by the way, he lied at church. He lied, the priest gave him bread, and he also gave him something else. What did he give him? Goliath's sword. That sword couldn't even protect Goliath. But now David is looking, rather, to, rather than looking to the Lord, looking into, here's this weapon, here's my natural ability, here's my resources, where did he go next? He goes to Gath. That was Goliath's hometown, by the way. Carrying Goliath's sword. Think about that for a minute. And he pulls in, right? And all of a sudden, the people say, whoa, whoa, time out. This is David, the king. Wait a minute. Wasn't there a number one hit song written about him? <laughs> Saul kills his thousands. David kills his 10,000. That was 10,000 of us. And now David's starting to panic. Remember what he did? He acted like a nut, right? <laughs> Literally. He acted like he was a psychopath. And the king of Gath was like, Achish, get him out of here. We don't, we, I don't need any more nuts here in town. Get him out. And you know what? His ruse worked. It worked. And there are sometimes your little ruse will work. But then David went where? Where did David go next? You guys know. Come on. The, ca the cave of, rhymes with Nadulam, the cave of Adulam. Thank you. And what's cool, the cave of Adullam looks over the valley of Elah. When, you go to, when we go to Israel next November, not this one. Sorry, gang. When we go to Israel, we're going to go there and we're going to see. That cave overlooks the valley of Elah. What happened in the valley of Elah? That's where David is a little shepherd boy. Trusting not in Saul's armor, not in, any, not in anything else, but the Lord and the Lord alone took out Goliath. And what happened? He came to his senses. That's when he looked up to the Lord. And that's where he began to pick up his harp, right? He started playing his little harp again. 
writing. And sometimes the Lord has to bring us to that place. He was stripped of everything. His wife, his best friend, Jonathan, his job in the government. And yet came to that place finally where he looked to the Lord. And the Lord became his sufficiency. Are you looking to the Lord this morning? Paul reminds the church, listen, it's the Lord's sufficiency. Only the Lord can change a life, by the way. Do you know that you can't change a life? We try to fix people, don't we? Try to fix our spouses, our kids, people in church, person next to you. You're looking, amen, pastor. Only Jesus is sufficient to change lives. Isn't that such a great reminder this morning to continually look to Jesus, to come to Jesus, to be filled up. Say, Lord, I am empty. I have been trying to do this in my own strength, my own sufficiency, my own wisdom. And Lord, you said in John chapter 7, I'm going I'm to hold you to this promise. Because didn't we just sing all of his promises are? Yes, yes and amen. You said, Lord, that if I come and drink, out of my heart will flow rivers of living water. Is that a description of your life this morning? If not, it's time to come to the Lord and say, Lord, fill me up. I want that to be the description of my life, that what's pouring out, Lord, is something glorious that would bring you honor and glory. Verse 6, Paul said, notice this, Paul speaks some more about God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of The new covenant. So not only is God our sufficiency, but what does he do? He's made us, past tense, sufficient. Does anybody have a King Jimmy Bible this morning? It says he's made us what? Able ministers. How cool is that? Do you know that you are an able minister this morning? You are sufficient. God has made you sufficient. As a minister, notice, not of the old covenant, but the... But the which covenant? The new covenant. Don't get covenant confusion this morning. Paul's going to make a contrast here between the new covenant and the old covenant. And it's very important to take note of that. Because that contrast, he calls the old covenant in just a moment, he calls it the ministry of death and condemnation. But he calls the new covenant ministry the ministry of the spirit and righteousness. I love that. And so God spoke of this new covenant all the way back in Jeremiah chapter 31. He also speaks of the new covenant and it's described in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read it real quick so that we understand what ministry God has given us. The new covenant. Because if somebody asks you, what does that mean? What's the new covenant mean? What's that all about? Would you know how to answer them? Would you know where to go in your Bible if someone asked you that? If you flip over real quick with me, you can flip there. I don't know if they're going to put it up on the scoreboard here. Hebrews 8. Because we should know what the new covenant... If if God's made us able ministers of the new covenant, we should probably know what the new covenant is. Correct? Should we know what it it is? Hebrews 8. Verse 7, for if that first covenant, that's the old covenant, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So there's a necessity of the second covenant. Because finding fault with them, problem is us. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's already been established for the church. Remember, Jesus established the new covenant uh, in his blood. Luke 22, you can check that out later. So this covenant's already been established for us, the church. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Here's number one. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And so what does that mean? God will be working internally in us. Internally enabling us and changing us from the inner core of our being, putting his word in our hearts and on our minds. And then number two, I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are the people of God. We are the children of God. Not only that, God goes on to say, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. What else does this covenant entail? An intimate relationship with God. No matter what status of life you come from, God is equal opportunity. Did you catch that? From the greatest to the least, it doesn't matter what your background is, your heritage, your bloodline. All that doesn't mean anything. What matters is being in Christ. Now you're a child of God. You have an intimate relationship with the true and the living God. But wait, there's more. It's like one of those cool commercials. But wait, what's the last thing? Check it out. For I, God says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's kind of amenable stuff, isn't it? Is that a word, amenable? I don't know, but I just made it up. <laughs> Your sins, my sins, forgiven, forgotten, gone forever. Why? Because we earned it? Because we were so good? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a really good person like me. That saved a wretch. I'm a lawbreaker. Sinner in need of a savior. And that's, what, that's all God has to work with. We provide the sinner, he provides the savior. That's good. Isn't that good news this morning, the new covenant? Now you guys know, flip back to 2 Corinthians 3. So Paul's presenting the superiority of the new covenant over the old. And he begins with saying, at the end of that verse, end of verse 6, about the new covenant, it's not of the letter but of the spirit. Why? For is a reason word. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter speaks of the law or the Ten Commandments. The law has no power to change us. Are you with me? The law has no power to change us. It only tells us what to do. Are you with me? Let me give you, that's not everybody. Let me give you an example. You guys ever see those signs? And when you're driving, do you guys ever see those signs? There's like a number, like 35, 55. You guys ever see those signs? It's got some writing, some letters. It's, what does it say above it? So I know some of you have never seen that sign before, but, it, and now, but now you know the law is exposing your unrighteousness. It's telling you what to do, correct? 
It shows us that we are lawbreakers. Correct? Oh, you guys have been keeping the speed limit. I watched some of you guys pull out of the parking lot here. The law has no power to change us. It only shows us what to do. The law shows us our condition, just like a mirror shows us the condition of my face. If I get a dirty face, I don't use the mirror to clean it. I get that good hose water, right? And get, and get it cleaned off. The law cannot change our hearts. It shows us the condition of our hearts. The law kills us. The law slays us. How? In the sense that it shows us, the law shows us we are guilty before God. That's how it kills us. Remember the Apostle Paul spoke about this. He thought he was a good law-abiding Jew, right? Until he recognized and realized that the law goes beyond our outward actions and goes to the inward thoughts and intents of our hearts, too. He said, I realize thou shalt not covet deals with my heart. And it's the law slew me. Jesus spoke about it too, didn't he? He said, you have heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever's looked at a woman with lust or a dude with lust in their heart, they've already committed adultery with them. So the law goes beyond the hour and goes straight to our hearts, showing us that we are out with, without excuse, that we can't justify our actions. And so it slays us. But notice what it says at the end of that verse, the spirit, what? What does the spirit do? Gives life. The Spirit makes us alive spiritually. When we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we're born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit enables us to do those things now. Now the Spirit enables us to do those things that God asks us to do. Why? Because Philippians 2.13 tells us it is God who works in you both to will and to do for who? For his good pleasure. He gives us, the, he gives us the, the, the want to and the power to, to walk in those things. The Spirit gives life. Isn't that glorious? Listen, guys, the only hope we have is the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Because look at verse 7. But the ministry of death, that's the old covenant, written and engraved on stones, was glorious. It was. This, the law, the ministry of death is glorious. Why? How is the law glorious? Well, because who did it come from? Who did the law come from? Who did the Ten Commandments come from? God. That's the, what Paul is, the, the, the illustration Paul's using here. He said, but if the ministry of death, the old covenant, the law, written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation, again, that's the old covenant, had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect. Why? Because of the glory that excels. He's speaking about the superiority of the new covenant. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. And so verse 7, notice what it speaks about. 
the ministry of death, the, the giving of the law. It was written and engraved on stones. Do you guys remember when that, when that happened? Book, what book was it from? Book of Exodus, chapter 19, the first time Moses went up the mountain, and then chapter 34, because he went up twice. Remember what happened the first time? He came down, and what did he do with the Ten Commandments? First guy to ever break all Ten Commandments at once, right? <laughs> Just boom. <laughs> Second time he goes back up, and think of, he, there's the mountain there. There's the earthquaking. It's dark. This mediator, this man that God called, in contrast to Jesus Christ, our mediator, who also went up a hill to give his life for us, to bring us life, because he rose from the dead on the third day. There's this contrast being made. Moses went up the mountain, and when he came down, he had this amazing shine, the mo glow, or the divine shine. Right? Wah, wah. He's shining, he's glowing. But he had to, had to cover his face, not to keep the people from looking at him, but because the glory was fading away. It wasn't a, it wasn't a eternal glory, but it was a temporary glory. And Paul is making a point here. Moses' face was shining from the glory of God's presence. He was lit up, but that glory was a fading glory. In other words, it's, it, it's kind of disheartening, kind of discouraging that that glory would go away. But it's a picture of the fading glory of the old covenant in comparison to the radiating glory of the new covenant. And so verse 8, Paul says, The ministry of the Spirit is more glorious why it's not a passing glory it's not a fading glory in fact we're going to learn in verse 18 in just a moment that we are going our lives are going from glory to glory that's an amazing thing we don't work we don't work to achieve that glory it's not because of our religious efforts or by our works or our church membership but by the giving of the holy spirit to us your body becomes the temple of the holy spirit is that amazing to think about this morning Think about that. God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in your life. Wherever you go, there goes the Holy Spirit. There goes the Holy of Holies. The holiest of all. And so to consider that this morning, God takes a residence in your life. That's part of the new covenant. That's an amazing part of this new covenant. Think about the old covenant. How could people approach God? You'd come to the temple, wouldn't you? And you can only get so far. Women, got to stop. Dudes, got to stop too. What tribe are you from? Oh, you're from the tribe of Levi. You got your Levi's jeans? You got Levi's jeans? Okay. I, I, some lame jokes this morning. Sorry. Okay, you're a Levite. Come on in a little closer. Oh, stop. You can't go any further. Which family are you from? I'm from Aaron's family. Okay, come on. A little closer. I want to get as close as possible to God. Can't do it. Well, why not? Because only the high priest can go into the presence of the Lord and only once a year on the Day of Atonement and not without blood. You come without blood, you're a goner, buckaroo. So think about that. What a bummer. You can only get so close, but because Jesus is our high priest, we get to do what? We get to boldly come before his throne of grace. 
anytime, anywhere, no matter what's, what's going on in your life, you can approach God. Did you catch that? With boldness. Not scared, not in condemnation. You're a child of God. You come right before him anytime you want. And you say, Father. You call him Dad. That's a mind blower. That big difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Look what it says in verse 9. For the ministry of condemnation. A reference to the law again. It's glorious, but the ministry of righteousness is way more glorious. Why? Look at verse 10. He says, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. So kind of a hard little play on words, but think about this. The ministry of righteousness. The law not only cannot change us, cannot fix us, but the law cannot make us righteous before God. Did you catch that? It cannot give us rights. Can you keep the law completely? Fully? Every job. Can you keep every commandment with perfection? Absolutely not. The law cannot justify us. What makes the new covenant more glorious, this ministry of righteousness, is that by simple trust in Jesus Christ, what's given to us is righteousness. The Bible says we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Did you earn that robe? Did you buy that robe? Is your robe better than your neighbor's robe? Because you put some bling on it? Is that the deal? Can you tighten it up? Some people think so, but they go back under law. Listen, we've all been given the same gift, free gift of righteousness. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. It is by the grace of of God. It is a judicial declaration. God calls, says you're forgiven. You're innocent of all charges. You're right in my sight. You're righteous. I declare you righteous. Is that good, is that good news? That too is a work of the Spirit, isn't it? It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Didn't Jesus say something like that? It's in the book. I know it happened to me. I know it happened to you. <laughs> The Holy Spirit was convicting us, showing us our need for Jesus until we what? We threw up our hands and surrender. The law was our schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus Christ, to show us our need for him. And so we surrender to him. And so the result, what is the result? The result is life and righteousness. And that's the ministry. Listen, that's the ministry that God's given you and I. He's made us able ministers that we are to take what we've been given and to share it with those that are lost and dying around us, heading to hell, apart from Jesus Christ. The old, the old covenant, which was glorious, has been done away with. Verse 11, for what is passing away was glorious. What remains, the new covenant, is much more glorious. Amen to that. Amen. Therefore, verse 12, in light of that, since we have such hope, we have hope this morning. We have such hope. Therefore, since we have such hope, what? We use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face. Why? Why did Moses put a veil over his face? So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing Away. So Moses has got this glow. He's shining. He throws up a veil so that they couldn't see the fading glory and be disheartened and be discouraged. What's interesting is we have such hope. 
If you have such hope this morning, are you speaking with boldness? Are you speaking with boldness this morning? That word boldness means confidence that speaks up. How many times do we see the Apostle Paul say, I'm confident of this. I'm persuaded. We see that a few times in the book. I'm confident that nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus. Didn't we just sing that song? Are you confident of that this morning? Paul said, Philippians chapter 1, I'm confident of this very thing, that God who's begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Are you confident of that? That's about 30% of the room. Hopefully we'll, we'll become confident. Paul said to Timothy, I'm, I know whom I have trusted. I'm confident that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him. Are you confident in God's keeping of your life that you've entrusted to his care this morning? Do you, have, do you have joy this morning? Do you have peace this morning? Some of us, you know what? You, you don't. Listen, you don't lose joy. You don't lose peace. You give it away. You forfeit it. You don't lose it. You give it away. Why? When you stop trusting in his promises, when you stop trusting in his sufficiency, when you stop standing upon the truth, the foundation of God's word. But here's the cool thing. Get your eyes right back on Jesus this morning. It's that simple. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Be anxious for nothing but in, in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? Will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Some of us are in panic mode. We're freaking out because of what's going on, because we've got our eyes on everything else but the Lord. How do I know that? Because I look at the church. Our brothers and sisters in panic, but we should be, as Christians, the most chill people around. <laughs> Pastor, come on, this COVID number 19. I just learned this, that do you know that 99.96% of the people that get it survive? Yep. Really? What's the worst that could happen? Actually, it's the best thing that can happen, isn't it? We take our last breath here and we... Our first breath with our Savior. Where our dreams and our future really begins. With Him. Where He's unfolding and, and showing us the manifold, many folds of His grace for all eternity, the glory. We get to be with Him. No more pain, no more suffering, no more disease, no more racism, no more terrorism, no more lies, no more cheating, no more stealing, no more gangbanging. Listen, it's going to be awesome. One amen. That's okay. No more taxes. Hallelujah. <laughs> Listen, we, have, we should have great boldness of speech. Jesus says, what I've whispered to you behind closed doors, you should be belting it out from the rooftops. We have such great hope. Do you have hope this morning? We have such great hope. Paul says, in light of that, man, we should have such great boldness of speech to be confident 
be confident in what God is doing in your life, in your family. And if not, you know, maybe even trusting your own sufficiency to say, Lord, forgive me. I've been trying to do it on my own. I've been trying to purchase every book on the internet to try to fix this problem. I've been Googling and whatever, and Amazoning, going through the Amazon, trying to find solutions. Listen, it's all right here. Take time. Sit down with Jesus. He loves you. This word is living and powerful. He wants to speak to your heart. You're his child. You're his sheep. He's our shepherd. Isn't he a good shepherd? He knows how to shepherd our lives. He loves us and cherishes us and nourishes us. But don't find your nourishment somewhere else. Come to him this morning. Get your eyes back on Jesus this morning. Well, look what it says. Where are we at? Verse 13, contrast. The new is everlasting. What we have in Jesus is glorious, superior than the Old Testament. Moses covering up his face so to hide the diminishing glory that was fading. And then he goes on to say, check this out. But their minds were blinded. Why? Why were their minds blinded? For until this day, up to when Paul was writing, even to today, gang, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Why? Because the veil is taken away in who? In Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil is taken away. Isn't that beautiful? So he's speaking of, in context, the Jews, right? Their minds were blinded, calloused, hardened, unresponsive. Why? Well, he tells us that covering remains over their hearts and minds that keeps them from understanding. And so think about that with me. It tells us in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, Jesus came to his own, who, who were his own? The Jewish people, by and large, they rejected him, correct? By and large, today, they're rejecting him, last 2,000 years. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And, and so Paul is saying, listen, they're still, they're still gazing at what? At Moses' covenant, while unable to see clearly what Jesus has accomplished for them, for us, with the new covenant in his blood. And in a general sense, the Jews have had this season of blindness for the last 2,000 years. We read in Romans 9, 10, and 11, correct? You guys read Romans 9, 10, and 11? You guys remember? A season of blindness because why? They rejected the chief cornerstone. Does that mean God's through with the Jew? Listen, he's not done with the Jewish people. And can I encourage you this morning, don't be doing that boycott junk of the Jews. Because God will curse those that curse his people. And he'll bless those that bless his people. I, listen, I have a hard time swallowing that, hearing people do that that are Christians. Like, you need to get a, a, some knuckles in the spirit. <laughs> Seriously, we should be eternally grateful to the Jewish people. Amen. That's what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, 11. Because of their rejection, it's allowed all non-Jews and Gentiles the opportunity to come into God's kingdom. It's not something we're to be proud of. 
God wants to use us in jealousy evangelism. God wants his people, his chosen people, to look at us and say, wow, I want what they have. Is that what people are saying about your life? I want what that family has, that dude has, that chick has. There should be something so different about our lives. And what's different about our lives is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But there's this blindness. You know, sometimes you say, oh, I'm going to share Isaiah 53 with this Jewish person. They're going to get it. Psalm 22. Psalm 2. They're going to get saved. And what happens? There's a rejection there. They reject Jesus. But guess what? Things are going to change, aren't they? God's not through with the Jew. Does God keep his promises? Didn't we just sing that song? All his promises are yes and amen. Are God's promises to Israel still valid? They are. He still has some to fulfill. When's that going to happen? Well, guess what's happening right now? You guys know God is choosing a bride for his son. That would be us. And then what's going to happen? The groom is going to come for us. The rapture. We're going to go up to meet the Lord in the air. Any moment it's going to happen, by the way. Better be ready. To go where? To the Father's house for a seven-year time period. What's going to happen on earth? God's going to fumigate planet earth. Remove wickedness and wicked ones. It's going to take tribulation to cause some people to cry out and surrender to Jesus. But for the most part, God's going to be dealing with the children of Israel. Because what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation? They're going to recognize that the Antichrist is not the Messiah, but Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And they're going to cry out to the one whom they pierced. And guess what's going to happen? He is going to come. Who's with him? Yeah, that's right. Amen. Do, do, do. Get me on horses. Get ready. And he comes to set up his kingdom on earth where all the promises made to the Israelis will be fulfilled. Because God's a promise-keeping God. Amen. Amen. So how does the veil go away? What does it say? Verse 16. Check it out. How does the veil go away? When a heart turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The eyes are open. Did Paul know that firsthand? Yes. Paul knew that firsthand, didn't he? Paul was a religious monster, killing Christians, thinking what he was doing for God was a good thing. And Jesus knocked him off his high horse. Who are you going to listen to? We justify ourselves rather than coming clean before God and admitting we need Him. Listen, maybe that's you this morning. The God of heaven and earth is speaking to your heart right now. And He's saying you need to turn to Him. He loves you. He orchestrates everything to bring you to this point. That you might get saved. He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Listen, if you reject what I'm saying, you're not rejecting a man. You're rejecting God who's reaching out to save you, rescue you, to forgive you, to give you a fresh start this morning, a new start, a new heart. We read about the new covenant. Well, there's two verses. Do we have time? We sure do. Here we go. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, what does your Bible say Liberty. For the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. Not liberty to do whatever you want in church. Sometimes people misapply this scripture. 
where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. We're going to be dancing down the aisles. We're going to be doing cartwheels. We're going to be barking like dogs and howling like wolves. And if you want, go to the zoo if you want that. <laughs> That's holy laughter right there, by the way. There is freedom. There's order in God's church. There's peace. It's a good place of peace. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, when the Spirit of God comes into your life, He sets you free. There's freedom. He rescues you. He breaks the power of sin in your life. It's a miraculous. It's glorious. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And He transforms you. Look at verse 18. But we all, Paul's including himself, that's all of us, we all, what? All y'all, that's the plural of y'all, we all what? With unveiled face, the veil is gone. Why? Because we turn to the, we turn to the Lord, the veil's gone. We can see clearly, correct? Beholding means looking at steadfastly. Beholding as in a mirror, the glory of of the Lord, looking at the beauty and majesty, just like you look into a mirror, looking at Jesus, the beauty and majesty, the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens? We are being transformed. We're being changed from the inner core of our being. The word is, in the Greek, metamorpho, which we get what word? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, where we're being transformed into what? Look what it says, don't miss this, into the same image. Whose image? Jesus. You know what that means? You're being changed to look more and more like Jesus. From glory to glory. How? How does this happen? By reading a book, going to a program? Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This eternal work from glory to glory of being molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ happens how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. As you're spending time with the Lord. Isn't it awesome to look at Jesus in the Gospels? To study Him? To look at Him? To spend time at His feet seeking His face? So often we seek His hand, but seeking His face... Like Mary, that one thing was needed to be seated at the feet of Jesus, receiving from him, talking things over with him. And this amazing thing happens. He transforms you like a butterfly. No way, man. Because pastor, I'm a Texan. Butterflies, you know. Not too tough, a butterfly. I'll be a worm then. <laughs> Listen, he's giving you wings to fly. Don't slither around the ground. It's time to soar for Jesus. To get our eyes on him. To keep our eyes on him. Amen? Amen. In Jesus' name. Lord, thank you so much. For ministering to our hearts. I pray that my precious brothers and sisters would take away those things that have come from you or the precious removed from the vile. 
we'd be encouraged and challenged, strengthened, built up, Lord, in our most holy faith. That we would truly leave here more in love with you. You're so great, Lord Jesus, so patient, so kind with us.